0: Memorial Day weekend, you know, it's, it's, it's a busy weekend. We have a lot to think about. You know, we're thinking about those who gave their lives and um, sacrifice for our country. And also the parents in the room are thinking about how their kids are home for like three months. It's the unofficial sort of beginning of the summer, right? Anybody taking a road trip for Memorial Day or like, For the summer, anybody going on a long road trip? Nobody's traveling. The gas prices, I get it. Wow, I was expecting at least one person to raise their hand besides me. Um, Okay, remember when we used to take road trips? And uh, one of the games we used to play was, Would You Rather? Do you remember that one? All right, I'm gonna give you two. Just to kind of get the, you know, get you thinking. Remember, Preaching, I can't preach well unless you listen well. Okay? So, all right, would you rather have a full-time chef in your house? Full-time? Somehow you could, just go with me. You can somehow afford this. Okay? We're dreaming. Full-time chef or full-time masseuse? The moms are like masseuse. And maybe chef. Maybe they throw both in. But what do you think? Chef? Masseuse, wow. Can we have both? Um, It's hard, right? All right, here's the second one. Would you rather have no phone at all, no smartphone? Yes. Yes. Great answer. No smartphone at all, or be addicted to your phone? No smartphone. I would get lost like driving home, Okay, maybe not home, but anywhere else. So I need my phone for so many things. Most of you do too. I think if we're really honest, most of us would choose the addiction, right? And and what's that doing to us? What's this smartphone addiction doing to us? Um, A few years back, the New York Times uh, wrote this article called, Your iPhone is ruining your posture and your mood. I love that picture of that guy going like (laughs) Uh, Amy Cuddy, the author, wrote this. If you're in a public place, look around. How many people are hunching over a phone? Technology is transforming how we hold ourselves, contorting our bodies into what the New Zealand physiotherapist Steve August calls the eye hunch. <laughs> I've also heard people call it text neck. She went on, the average head weighs 10 to 12 pounds. Mine weighs 15. Um, when we... <laughs> When we bend our necks forward 60 degrees, as we do on our phones, the effective stress on our neck increases to 60 pounds, the weight of about five gallons of paint. Can you believe that? As a result, doctors are now seeing stooped necks in teenagers. All right, teenagers in the back, you're like rubbing your neck right now. Do I have one? Stooped necks. That used to be in our great-grandparents, and now they're in teenagers because of this. So she finishes by saying, the next time you reach for your phone, remember that it induces slouching, and slouching changes your mood, your memory, and even your behavior. So this is a, a simple example of a biblical theme that we are what we love. The reason why we reach for this is because we love it. We become what we love. And we even said this earlier in Psalm 115. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. So what we love matters immensely. A theologian named Greg Beal went so far as to say, we resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. And this phrase will serve as sort of the outline for today's sermon. We resemble what we revere for ruin or for restoration. With that, I wonder if you might stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Sandra Kyler is gracious enough to read this for us today.
1: Our Old Testament reading is found in 1 Kings 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It is you, you troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore... Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire... He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, now choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry louder, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be wakened. And they cried louder and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed, And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sandra. That was a long one. Well done, everybody. Let's pray once more. Father, we need the fire of your presence to fall. Turn our hearts back to love you most, to love each other as you call us to by your spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, pray in your name, amen. So first, we resemble what we revere. So the Bible is basically a story about worship, if you want to boil it down. God created us to love him, and he created us to flourish when we love him most of all. But the problem is we prefer counterfeit gods to him. And that is the reason for all the disintegration and all the pain and brokenness and chaos in our world. That's Genesis one through three. The rest of the Bible is how God plans and executes his plan to bring us back into relationship with him, to bring us back into flourishing, which is putting him first, loving him most. And that culminates in the person of Jesus that's the story in a nutshell. And we, we're sort of beaming into that big story of grace, of God's plan of redemption to bring us back into relationship with him in 1 Kings, some 800 years or so before Jesus. And in this story, we learn a lot about worship. We learn about this principle that we resemble what we revere, as we'll see. So in that day, the nation of Israel was torn in two. Ten tribes up in the north of Israel and two down low in Judah. And the reason why they had been torn into is because of this problem called idolatry, which we're going to talk about. In, in essence, preferring someone or something else instead of God. This is the problem with the whole world. And we see a microcosm of that in the nation of Israel. Idolatry had torn the place apart, the people apart. Some were following Yahweh, but many more were following this God called Baal. Baal was the storm god of the day. He he did other things, but primarily about storms and and rain systems and weather systems. And so many people had turned to him. Uh, The king at that time was Ahab, and he had uh, married a person, a woman named Jezebel, who was a Baal worshiper. And after that happened, the nation seemed to follow suit. After this marriage with a Baal worshiper, the, the nation of Israel seemed to basically say, we prefer him over you, God of all things. And God, in chapter 16, just to catch you up with where we've been in the last few weeks, God was extremely angry about this because the nation had not only turned from him, but is ripping itself apart. So he's angry at their pain. He's angry at anything that hurts his people. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, on a date with my wife. She's not here. Uh, she's at home sick with the kids. I think I told you that already. This guy was not watching where he was going, and uh, he's just kind of laughing, being real boisterous, and he like backs into Ann and like bumps her with his elbow and like hits her. And She's like, oh, I see her wince, and I didn't even think. I was like, "Buddy, what are you doing? You better watch it, buddy. You know, you need to be careful what you're doing." And again, I didn't even think. I just reacted because, because I love this person. I want to protect her. It works the same way with God, but in a in an infinitely greater degree. He loves you. He'll do anything to protect you, he'll he'll try to take away anything that's hurting you. And we see this, in the beginning of 1 Kings, God sends Elijah the prophet to get his people's attention through a drought. It's somewhat symbolic of their spiritual state, right? Lifeless, following a lifeless God instead of the true God of all things. And this drought had persisted for three years and King Ahab is so upset about this drought, so he wants to get to the source of the problem, and he's after Elijah the prophet. He want, he's hunting him down. He's trying to take him out so that the storm god Baal can send rain again. And that's the beginning of chapter 18. Uh, god tells Elijah to go and present himself to Ahab, the person who's hunting him down. And after that, he would bring rain. And so, this is where catching you up to the beginning of our verses this morning. In verse 17, we read, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Whoever or whatever we revere, we will resemble. And here we're meant to see that Ahab's allegiance to the storm God had poisoned his heart. To this false God, it had changed him from the inside out. And we see this, the language that he used, this word troubler of Israel can also mean ruiner, ruiner of Israel. And Elijah, remember prophets in that day spoke for God. They represented God. And so, in essence, by saying, you are a ruiner of Israel, Elijah, he's pointing to the God of Elijah and saying, you have ruined Israel, God. He's made himself an enemy of God. He's shown his true colors with this statement. His heart had been turned against God. And again, the nation of Israel had followed. We are what we love. And you know, today, look, we're not bowing down to statues very often. Our idol worship is a, is a lot more camouflaged, but it's it's no more per, it's it's certainly no less pervasive today as it was in the ancient Near East. Uh, in 2005, an author um, named David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address uh, at Kenyon College. This is I've listened to this several times. It's one of the most um, powerful commencement speeches I've ever heard. And I want you to listen to to what he has to say. Keep in mind, this person is an atheist, okay? So keep in mind that as you hear what he says about worship.
2: In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and a compelling reason for maybe, choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings, because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but of course there are all different kinds of freedom and the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talked about much in the great outside world of wanting and achieving and displaying. So he understood something that we often overlook
0: Uh, That everybody worships, but also that money and beauty and power often become more than money, beauty, and power to our hearts. They become too important to us. And what we're going to see next is how when we do that, it always inevitably leads us to ruin. Idols lead to ruin. So Elijah set up this divine showdown between Yahweh and Baal. Right, he sets up two altars, he said 450 prophets go over here, set up your altar, and I'm gonna go over here by myself and I'm gonna set up mine. And whoever's God sends down fire to consume the sacrifice, he is God. And you people of Israel, serve him, follow him. So that's the showdown. That's the one rule. Set it up. Whoever sends the fire wins the day and wins the people's hearts. And just before this showdown, Elijah calls out God's people. He's not afraid to be direct to them. He's a prophet, right? He speaks the truth about their spiritual state. And he says this in verse 26. He says that they were limping between two opinions. Sorry, verse 21. And then in verse 26, he describes, let's look at this part. So what does that mean? What does it mean by limping between two opinions? Verse 26 helps us, the prophets of Baal took the bull that was given, prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. So in high school, I played basketball, and one game, I went up, I can't remember if I was going for a rebound or not, but I sprained my right ankle, turned it right over, it was about the size of a, a grapefruit the next day. And then for good measure in college, about a year later, I sprained my other ankle. (laughs) Same thing, limped for weeks and weeks. Still have problems with them. So what is the author of 1 Kings doing by comparing the hearts of God's people to this ritual dance of these storm God followers? What's he saying? He's saying that their hearts, the people of God, the hearts of the people of God are as defective as this dance. This dance that they're doing for their storm God. Their hearts are just as wrong and just as defective as theirs. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite theologians, said this. Do we realize how almost exactly the Baal culture of Canaan is reproduced in American church culture? Baal religion is about what makes you feel good. Baal worship is a total immersion in what I can get out of it. And of course, it was incredibly successful. The Baal priests could gather crowds that outnumbered the followers of Yahweh 20 to 1. There was sex. There was excitement. There was music. There was ecstasy. There was dance. What did the Hebrews have to offer in response? The Word. What's the Word? It's the biggest word we have here salvation, being saved. We are saved from a way of life in which there was no resurrection. And we're being saved from ourselves. One way to define spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself, you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. Look, idol worship, following after counterfeit gods, good things that become ultimate things, it's everywhere. It's not just out there, though, it's in this room, it's in this chest. And here's the thing. The Bible helps us to see where this leads. Where did it lead these prophets? To death. And this is where idol worship always leads us to ruin. Whether in this life or the next. Look, like Baal, counterfeit gods, they offer fireworks. They offer this notion of solace when the world is hard. life goes sideways they promise the good life of security of meaning of purpose but they're silent and powerless when they're needed most are you tired of the empty promises of of a false god like money like sex like power like approval like a job, like $10,000 more I just need $10,000 more then I'll be happy. Aren't you tired of that? That longing, that just, and when you get it, by the way, what happens? I, actually, I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more. What, what was it uh, Andrew Carnegie was asked? How much money is enough? And he always said, a little bit more one of the most rich persons in human history. That's how it works. That's how our hearts operate. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. There's hope for us. Let's turn there now. He can restore. Verse 30, let's look there. Elijah said to all the people, okay, so that's the situation. Whoever's God shows up, follow him. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So I don't have time to unpack all the, sim- the symbolism here, but it's rich, right? The 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, they had been broken apart. But what does Elijah do? He restores this altar. He restores symbolically this people that had been torn apart. And then Elijah had the water, or the altar soaked three times, or four, sorry, four times so that it fills a trench with, with gallons upon gallons of water. But remember, what's the context? They're in a drought. Water was precious. Why did he do this? Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord! God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. What was it gonna take for a people limping between idols and Yahweh, saying, I'm I'm not sure who I should follow? What was it gonna take for them with hearts that were poisoned, that were on the path to ruin for them to come back to be restored into relationship with God. Nothing more than God himself. Now look at this. Verse 38. I love this part. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. These idol worshipers were converted on the spot. I want to let you in on something that hit me this week as I was praying. The Lord always does this, okay? On either side of salvation in the Bible is always the fire of God's presence. On either side of salvation is always the fire of his presence. Think about the story of of Exodus. The people of God were crying out to him for salvation rescue us from slavery in Egypt. And then where does Moses go? He goes to this place in the desert, and who shows up? God in the form of a burning bush. And he says, I heard your cries. I will rescue you. And then he does, he pulls them out miraculously from the tyranny of Egypt, and then what does he do? He leads them by day by a pillar of cloud and by night by a pillar of fire, saying, I'm with you. I'm with you in the desert, no matter what. And then in this story, we see God's presence come down in the most miraculous way, consuming all of the altar, And then he turns their hearts. He saves them. And then a chapter later, and Patrick's gonna really unpack this in the next couple weeks. But I love this part. Elijah flees. Ahab and Jezebel are so furious at what happened to the prophets of Baal. And so they begin hunting him again. And he's running and he's running. He's exhausted. He's depressed. And he says, he cries out to God, says, Lord, take my life. I'm done. I've had enough. Take me, Lord. And what does the Lord do? He taps him on the shoulder after he's fallen asleep, hoping to die. An angel taps him on the shoulder and right there on the ground is a coal, some burning stones with a hot cake on top for him to eat and to be sustained in his journey the fire of God's presence to sustain him, the depressed one, the overwhelmed one, the exhausted one, saying, I'm with you. I'm not just gonna save you, I'm with you. I'm going to sustain you. And then, hundreds of years later, Jesus comes announcing that he is the light of the world. And this light of the world does battle with the darkness, a showdown with sin and death and the devil. And this one doesn't flee. He doesn't hide. He doesn't run. He lets himself be captured. He lets himself be taken so that he could be beaten, spit upon, betrayed, denied, tortured, slaughtered to save us, to save people like me, who limp between opinions, people like you. But then what happens? He overcomes death. He overcomes the devil. He overcomes our sin. He doesn't stay in the grave. He doesn't stay. He bursts forth, victorious. The light overcomes the darkness. And then 40 days later, before his ascension, what does he say? The promise of the Father will be given to you in Jerusalem. Go there, and what happens? What rests upon their head at Pentecost? The fire of the Holy Spirit rests upon them. For the mission to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I'm with you always. The fire shows He is with us. So, are you discouraged today? Are you jaded? You're here, but you might not really be here. Your heart might be somewhere else, your mind. Are you overwhelmed? Are you depressed? On May 21st, 1738, a young and discouraged Christian minister named John Wesley went to church, which was the last place that he expected to meet God and to get out of his spiritual depression. Maybe that's you today. This is the last place you thought God would show up. But something happened when he heard the reading Uh, from Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Look it up sometime, Luther's preface to the book of Romans. I'll tell you why. When he heard it read, this theologian from 500 years ago, he heard this read and he said this. He wrote this in his journal. While Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So here was a man 10 years into full-time ministry who was converted by the fire of God. And through him, literally hundreds, thousands of men and women heard the gospel. And he was part of the great awakening in this country. He was an instrumental part of that. This man who wasn't even a Christian and he was a pastor for 10 years. He was depressed. He was certainly limping between two opinions. But look what God did. God can do that for you. He can do that for me. I'm 10 years in the ministry. I just celebrated 10 years in his providence like a week ago. I need the fire of God's presence too. And odds are you do as well if I lose sight of what God has done for me in Christ, that it's not about me, it's not about my experience or this microphone, it's about him. He's the reason why we gather here. It's not the songs, as great and beautiful as they are. It's not, it's not the people as great and beautiful as you are. It's him. He is what makes us a different people. It's his presence, the presence of the God who would do anything. Thing for you it's not my word Is not my word like fire declares the Lord and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces some of our hearts are hard like rock but his word breaks through it his word is like fire this is why we care so much about the scriptures because it's fire and he can set our hearts on fire with the gospel. There's no other good news like this in the world, friends. You can search all your life long, but there's no other person like Jesus. There's no other one like him. I wanna close the way uh, our service began with that scene from Indiana Jones. You know, Indiana, he had a choice. He could either keep reaching for those idols that he had been chasing his whole life and fall to his death, his ruin. Or he could take the hand of the Father, the Father who loved him and live. You have that choice too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, your son that you sent to save us. Yes, even us, those who call themselves Christians but whose hearts are very much spoiled by our idols, things that we love too much. And Lord, we're, we're sorry. We, we want to change and we need your help. We cannot change without your amazing grace. And so, Lord, I pray for every heart in this room. I pray that they would turn to you for life. That we would see that you have been holding us all along. We need only give up from our struggle, our chase, and let you pull us up. That we might have the abundant life in Christ. It's not easier, but it's better. Because it leads to life and eternity with you instead of life separated from you and eternity separated from you in eternal ruin. And so, Lord, come. Change our hearts again. Save us again from ourselves. Help us to be fed up with ourselves. Holy Spirit, make this church a place of your presence. Not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So come, pray in Christ's name, amen.